one of the things that defines this generation is the introduction of and the fervent use of social media. Now, I do see that some of our older members have uh, delved into the world of social media with Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, and it's so neat to see you guys interacting with our students on it. But for those that may not be so familiar with social media, some of you may be looking at our uh, notes title today, the sermon title, and you may be asking like Pastor did first thing this morning, Trip, what's up with the typo in the bulletin? I said, no, Pastor, that's not a typo. That pound sign is what's called a hashtag in social media. And he said, well, what in the world's a hashtag? And Steve said, well, I know what a hashtag is. That's when you're down at Arby's Barbecue and you make your order and they give you a tag to go get your hash on your rice. I said, no, 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 that's not either. Well, what's a hashtag? Well, a hashtag, Pastor, is something that's used in social media um, for different purposes. Uh, first of all, a hashtag can be used to categorize information to make it easy to search. Uh, for instance... A lot of people will take pictures of their Sunday school outings here, and they will put a hashtag on it, life at first. And so if you go on Twitter or Instagram and you do a search for life at first, you'll see a lot of the various activities we do here at First Baptist Church, life at first. Hashtags can also be used to bring context or humor or maybe even inside jokes uh, to some information. Our students that... Uh, went to Israel with Dr. Estep last summer, they were amazed. They were amazed by his hair. They said, Trip is never messed up. And so if they were tweeting, they could say, Dr. E has great hair, hashtag Lego. That's an inside joke. The students say, it's like Lego hair. I wonder if he just pops it off at night and <laughs> sets it on his nightstand. I let him know, no, he doesn't pop it off. It's a hairpiece. He just snatches it off and throws it in the nightstand. But a hashtag can also be used to summarize or to be used as a PS, a postscript. And today what I want to do for you students, especially for you graduates, is I want to put a hashtag on everything I've taught you the past seven years. And that hashtag is this, no matter what. Over the past seven years, I've tried to give you as little of my opinion or as little of my feelings as possible and as much of the Word of God as I possibly can. Because the reality is when you go off to college, your feelings are going to change. Your circumstances are going to change. And you need to rely not on something that changes, but you need to rely on something that is eternal no matter what. God is God no matter what. God's truth is truth no matter what. And in a culture where you're being told that everyone can hold their own truth, where moral relativism and pluralism is being promoted as the norm, we need followers of Christ who hold the truth, who stand, and who do the right thing no matter what. There's a lot of words this generation hears a whole lot of. One is tolerance. 
You must have a permissive attitude toward those who have differing opinions. Another word I know you hear a lot is compromise. You must compromise your beliefs to be accepting of my beliefs. Coexist. You even see it on bumper stickers. We have to live at peace no matter what our differences are. We have to find middle ground. You're inundated with these messages. But you need to understand, here's the problem with those messages. The problem is this. God is not satisfied with our respect. He insists not only on our loyalty, but on our absolute exclusive loyalty. I was talking with a student, one of these graduates this past week. And he was saying, Trip, I just get so frustrated. At school, I took a stand on a moral issue and I took a biblical stand on it. And I was called a bigot. I was called a hater. I was called intolerant. And I'm just trying to stand on the word of God. And I'm being told, I can't do that because that is not acceptable. This person said, Trip, I want to make a difference for Christ. How do I respond in a culture where I can't even stand for what I believe because the people who are yelling intolerance are those very people who are intolerant of me? What do I do? Well, we talked about how we have to love the world. We can love and accept someone without loving and accepting their sin. And in fact, that's absolutely what we should do as a church. We talked about The central challenge of our time is how we communicate the inescapable claims of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the gospel is wonderfully inclusive. It's for all people in all places. God is Lord of all, but it is also relentlessly exclusive. Jesus is not a way. Jesus is the way. Jesus himself said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will stand forever. Students, we have to stand on what is true and we have to stand on what is eternal. This student said, well, Tripp, how do I do this at college? What are your thoughts on how I respond in such a tolerance-driven world? Today, I want to share my thoughts with you. And not just my thoughts, I want to share with you a great example from the Word of God, a man in the Old Testament who lived in a tolerance-driven society, but he stood for his faith no matter what. You may say, seriously, Tripp, the Old Testament? Someone who lived in a culture that's a lot like ours? How can we even relate to this? Well, as you turn to 1 Kings chapter 18... Let me set the scene for you here and give you a little background of what's going on. See, God's people, the Israelites, were divided into two kingdoms at this time. Ahab was king over part of Israel. His wife Jezebel began to worship a false god named Baal. Eventually, Ahab built a temple to Baal and he started building um, altars to Baal. And before you know it, Ahab, who was himself an Israelite, a professed follower of God, began to worship Baal himself. He turned his back on the creator of the universe to worship a God that was made up by people. 
Ahab not only set the very poor example that I can say I'm loyal to God, but have divided loyalties. We're told that the prophets, the false prophets of Baal and of Asherah, they actually ate at Jezebel's table. Follow this now. Not only were these false prophets eating at Jezebel's table, they were supported by the state. They also were promoted by the state. So you have the people of God who has an earthly king who has divided loyalties. And not only does he have divided loyalties, the state, the government, is promoting these things that don't honor God. Can we relate to this at all? The Israelites soon began to follow their king. And they began to worship Baal themselves. God sends the prophet Elijah to the people to say, hold on, there's a problem here. He sends Elijah to King Ahab and he says there's going to be a drought. Not one drop of dew is going to fall from the sky until I say so. Or the plants begin to wither. They die, the animals begin to die. And if something doesn't happen here, the people themselves are going to die. For three and a half years, there was this famine, there was this drought. But God took care of Elijah every single day. The story picks up in 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 1. After a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. He said, go and present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now on his way, he encounters a man named Obadiah. Obadiah was a servant of the king Ahab, but he was also a follower of God. As Jezebel was killing and persecuting the, uh, the, the followers of God, he was hiding them in caves to try to help them. He meets Elijah. Elijah says, hey, Obadiah, I want you to arrange this meeting with me and Ahab. Obadiah says, uh-uh, he'll try to kill me if I do this. There's no way I'm doing that. So Elijah says, I promise you, everything's going to be okay. And he's on his way to see Ahab. Let's pick up the story in verse 16. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab uh, and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and he assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and he said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. On that mountaintop, Elijah drew a line in the sand. He said, how long are you going to waver between two opinions? Other translations say, how long are you going to limp back and forth between these various opinions? Or how long are you going to sit on the fence? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. 
The people were wavering. They were going back and forth. You know, we do the same thing today. Well, hold on, Trip. They were worshiping idols. We don't really have a whole lot of idols. Let's define idols quickly here. An idol is a person, a pleasure, or a possession that is more important than your relationship with God. A person, a pleasure, or a possession that is more important than your relationship with God. On that mountaintop, Elijah says, you got to choose. Truth demands a choice. You can't go back and forth. There was no middle ground. Elijah made them choose, but he also showed them what it meant to be unwavering. Students have four points. In this blueprint that Elijah gives us on how to be unwavering in a tolerance-driven society, the first point is this. He chose to obey God no matter the cost. He chose to obey God no matter the cost. He knew his message was from God. And he did the right thing regardless of what it cost him. The key word here is obedience. Obedience was the key. It was the key for Elijah, but obedience was also the key for the Israelites. You see, they were so worried about this famine, but the nation's problem was not lack of rain. The nation's problem was lack of loyalty and obedience to God. See, they had their focus on the wrong issue. How many times do we do that today? Sometimes we get so caught up arguing about the effects of sin or the consequences of sin that we ignore the root of the problem, which is sin. If your house caught on fire and you called the fire department and they showed up and they said, what in the world are we going to do with all this smoke? Well, I don't know. What should we do with it? And they're out there talking about the smoke. You're going to be pretty upset. Because you know the root of the problem is the fire. Let's put the fire out and stop worrying about the smoke. How many times do we do that in our country? Look at the news. So much of what we spend time arguing about and debating and discussing and picketing is not the root of our problem. They're only results of a much deeper problem which is sin. How many times do we put our focus on other people's smoke? Man, so-and-so, they got a real problem. We need to not be so much worried about the actions of the world, but the actions of the church. We need to start obsessing over sins of others, but look at the sin in our own hearts. Their families here today that are being destroyed by sin. And all we want to talk about is the smoke instead of dealing with the fire. You know, I hear some students say things like, Trip, I just hate my parents and their rules. They're so difficult to live with. Let me tell you this, students. If your parents have drawn a line in your home when it comes to sin, if they're taking a stand against sin in your home, That's the greatest love they can show you. The greatest love. There are some families here today that are experiencing conflict. And the parents are taking a stand. And my encouragement is don't waver. Don't give up. Don't let in. Because your actions are going to mean more than what you say. 
to these students. I'm so proud of parents who say, you know, every other family we know may do this or that. But as for me and my house, we are going to serve and we're going to honor the Lord no matter what. We're not going to be entertained by the sin that put Jesus on the cross. We're going to honor God in our home no matter what. This past week in the news, you probably saw there was an NBA player, a longtime NBA player, who came out that he was gay. Within hours, the president had called him to congratulate him and tell him how courageous he was for taking such a stand. Later that day, there was an ESPN analyst who was asked his opinion, no less, on it. And he said, I think he's a great basketball player and I accept him. But as a follower of Jesus, I cannot accept his sin. And he made the point, not only that, hear me out. I also can't accept sin in my own life. I also can't accept the sin of other NBA players who are sleeping around on their wives. We need to call sin a sin. And it's not about having a social issue. It's about having an issue with the word of God. That ESPN analyst was jumped on. They called for his resignation. They called for his firing. Later that day, I saw that the USC quarterback, Dylan Thompson, had simply retweeted an article about this ESPN analyst. And people were jumping all over him. People were saying things like, man, I used to like you, but look at you. Why do you have to go and do this? And you know what his response to all these people jumping on him was? He said this, quote, I'm not here to be liked. I'm here to honor Christ. That is a follower of Christ no matter what. That's someone who has made up their mind. They made their choice. They know that God is God and they're going to follow him no matter what. Students, people are not going to like you. There's going to be a cost. Obadiah said, I don't want to do it. I don't want to deal with the consequences of doing the right thing. Elijah said this back in verse 15. He said, as the Lord Almighty lives whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab and I will do it today. Today I will be obedient no matter the cost. So he draws a line in the sand in verse 22. Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood and not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. The second thing I want you to know, students, is that he trusted in God no matter the circumstance. He trusted in God, no matter the circumstance. When his knee was the greatest and against all odds, he fully depended on God. He orchestrates his challenge on top of Mount Carmel. And what he does by picking Mount Carmel, he gives the 450 prophets of Baal and all the Baal worshipers a home field advantage. By all worldly accounts, the odds were against him. Here's your key word, faith, faith. How did Elijah have such big faith? 
Elijah has big faith because Elijah had a big view of his God. There was a businessman who had to travel to a small town for a meeting. And he invited his wife to come along with him. She was excited about the trip until she learned that they would be flying to this town on a small twin-engine Cessna plane. She said, honey, I don't believe I'm going on this trip. He said, why not? She said, because there is no way I'm getting on a small twin-engine Cessna airplane. The husband looked at her, smiled knowingly and said, honey, your faith is too small. She said, no, your plane is too small. Well, the husband really wanted her to go, so he canceled the flight on the Cessna, and he booked a flight on a large commercial plane. The wife changed her mind, in her words, because her faith grew because the size of the plane grew. See, the object of her faith determined how much faith she decided to have. Guys, we serve a big God. Why in the world will we put our faith in people who aren't God, but yet we won't trust God? The weatherman says it's going to rain today, so we grab an umbrella. We all know that they only get it right 50% of the time. We trust in our doctors with our lives. We trust our pharmacists. We will get on an airplane made out of fiberglass and tin metal and go hundreds of miles an hour through the sky. Why do we have problems trusting the God who made that sky. Students, don't be scared to put yourself in situations for the sake of God's glory where God is your only answer. Dr. J. Strat told us when we were in Israel and we are on top of Mount Carmel, he said, the bigger your God, the smaller your obstacles. So he tells the false prophets, all right, let's do this. You go first. In verse 26, so they took the bull given them. They prepared it. They called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. They danced around the altar they had made. And at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. Okay, students. In the original Hebrew, the allusion here is maybe your God is in the restroom. All right? He's jumping all over these people, taunting them here. Well, they shouted louder and they slashed themselves with swords and spears until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention students whatever it is that you're putting your faith in that you're giving your affection to other than God don't expect it to be an answer see idols never have an answer I work with so many students who get so frustrated to the point of cutting themselves just like these false prophets cut themselves And I say, why are you so frustrated? Why are you so angry? And we look at it, and they've been putting their faith and their trust in idols and false gods. The reality is, idols never have an answer. But God always has an answer. So why is our faith sometimes so small? Students, it's important to remember 
that it's impossible to trust someone you don't know. It's impossible to trust someone you don't know. Verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. And they came and he repaired the altar of the Lord which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. Number three, he rebuilt the altar of God no matter the conditions. He rebuilt the altar of God. Now, what is an altar? An altar is a place of prayer. It's a place of sacrifice. It's a place of repentance. It's a place of reconciliation. The rebuilding of the altar in the middle of this showdown was a call not only for reconciliation between God's covenant people, it was a call for reconciliation to God. The key word here is intimacy. Intimacy. Whenever you see a pregnant woman, you can know for certain that she didn't get that way by reading a book about sex. See, information didn't get her pregnant. Intimacy did. Transformation doesn't occur in Christians because we read about it. We're transformed because we get close. It's too many times we want to see the power of God without seeking the face of God. Experiencing the power of God in your life, students, it begins by building your altar. It begins with prayer. It begins with repentance. It begins with intimate fellowship with God. One of the most uh, significant things spiritually that I witnessed growing up. When I was young, I got up during the middle of the night to use the restroom and I saw a light on in the kitchen. So I creeped down the hall and I peeked around the corner. And at our kitchen table, in the middle of the night, I saw my dad with his Bible open and his face in his hands having time with God. Parents, the altars in too many Christian homes have been destroyed by busyness, by complacency, by I'm just too tiredness, and by neglect. Students, you better get serious about building your altar. If your altar's not in place, nothing of eternal significance is going to happen in your life. The last point is this. He promoted God's fame no matter the company. He promoted God's fame, no matter the company. Elijah had the bull placed on the altar. Then he dug a trench around the altar. He had four big buckets of water poured on top of the bull, on top of the altar, so much that it ran down and it filled the trenches. Elijah wanted to make sure that the people knew that only God could light the fire. The key word here is humility. And he steps forward with this prayer. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you're turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of God fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and it licked up the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. 
as Elijah called on the power of God. He prayed that God would be known by the people and that he would simply be known as a servant. Students, when your heart's desire is to see God lifted up, to see him increase and you decrease, that's when the power of God will be seen in your life. Well, God's power fell and the people fell on their faces and they cried, the Lord, he is God. To continue to promote God's fame, Elijah got rid of all things that competed with God's loyalty. See, it was time to choose. All traces of Baal had to go. And when the people repented, God sent the rain. As we conclude, let's note in the next chapter, Elijah experienced a strong wind, an earthquake, and a fire. But God was not in any of those. Instead, God displayed his presence in a gentle whisper. See, even today, God often speaks through a gentle and the obvious rather than the spectacular and unusual. God has work for us to do. Are we going to be faithful no matter what? What an incredible scene. What an incredible miracle. But guys, the real miracle in Elijah's life was his personal relationship with God. Although you might wish to do amazing things for God, amazing miracles, are you focusing on your relationship with God? That same miracle is available to us today through Jesus Christ. The central question today is the same as Elijah. How long are you going to waver? See, we waver theologically by denying the exclusive reality of Jesus Christ in a pluralistic world. We waver morally when we try to blend an unbiblical lifestyle with a profession of faith in Christ. And we waver spiritually when we allow any idol to take the place of Christ in our life. Wavering has become respectable, even politically correct in our society, but is spiritually impossible. Truth demands a choice, no middle ground. Students, if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, follow him no matter what. Father God, we love you. We thank you that you never change, that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God, my prayer for these students as they go from here today, God, that they will follow the truth of your word no matter what. That they'll look at their lives and any idol, anything that is taking your place. God, may they promote you. May they humble themselves. And God, may they stand on the truth of your word no matter what. Father, if someone's here today and they've never responded to the miracle of knowing you through Jesus Christ, may they not wait any longer, but may they respond even now in Jesus' name. As we come to a time of invitation, at the bottom of your note sheet, there's three questions and it's called take it home. Because I want you as a family to take these questions home and to talk about it. What idols have crept into your life or into your home? What's the condition of the altar in your home? How are you promoting the fame of God? 
it all starts with a personal relationship with Christ. As we have a time of invitation, I want to invite you to respond. Maybe you need to come to this altar and you need to pray. Maybe you need to speak to someone and give your life to Jesus. No matter what, would you respond to him even today as we stand together and as we sing?